Rosine and Lucy for also helping to organize uh, this, this really lovely conference. I've been enjoying it thoroughly so far. Um, the topic of uh, shared sacred spaces occupies a peculiar position in the historiography of 16th and 17th century European religion. In one form or another, sh sharing was not a rare thing, but ubiquitous, especially in the early days of the evangelical reform as, as communities worked out their responses to the pluralization of creeds. But from the standpoint of the most active participants in the con controversy over religion, it was also a perversion. To share sacred spaces was to risk the taint of heresy or popery, depending on your point of view. Worse, it might encourage Nicodemites to betray the true faith by conforming outwardly to the lit liturgies of a false religion as the price for the free exercise of domestic religion. And not surprisingly, the topic has been an orphan child of the confessionalization thesis, something that dominates my field, but we haven't been talking about much here uh, today, with its emphatically status purchase on the transformations of religion. Uh, the question that I want to pose today, then, is how was spatial sharing even possible between groups uh, that lay exclusive claim to the status of true religion? By way of offering some answers to that question, um, I'd like to place shared spaces at the center of attention and ask after its inner logic and mutations. Uh, after a few suggestions on how we should and should not approach them, I'd like to examine the experience of one Westphalian town, the town of Bocholt, um, in order to show how attending to the complex negotiations around shared space uh, can alter our broader interpretation of confessional relations. And then finally, I'd like to map out a few, a few regimes or modes of religious coexistence in the early modern empire uh, and the forms of sharing that corresponded to each. Let me begin with a story. Um, in July of 1623, a commission of investigation arrived in the walled town of Warendorf, or Warendorp, as it uh, appears here in fine northern German, uh, for the purposes of assessing individual and collective culpability in a recent rebellion uh, against Ferdinand I, Archbishop of Cologne and administrator of the Prince Bishopric of, Bishopric of Münster. He's the guy who uh, persecuted all the witches in Cologne? That guy. Yeah, real bad dude. Um, the commissioners were also interested in finding out uh, about religious observance in these towns, for it was an open secret that many of them contained large numbers of Protestants. Uh, indeed, most of the Westphalian towns contained Protestant majorities. Ahaus, Bevergaun, Bocholt, Reine, Warendorf, and Frieden, among others, a few others. Um, and in the rest, uh, between a quarter and a half, deserved uh, the label heretic, in other words, non-Catholic. What the commissioners discovered about the practice of religion, however, may well have surprised them. Uh, the Warendorf's uh, magistrates reported, for example, that the town's two Catholic priests performed all the baptisms and marriages and, so did, the, and did so in the Catholic manner, regardless of uh, the parishioners' religious inclinations. Uh, in his testimony, the town treasurer, a man named uh, Johannes Sterneberg, gave inadvertent definition to the term heretic. Only separatists merited that designation, he argued. People whose forbidden creed obligated them to recuse themselves from baptism and marriage in the town's parish churches. In other words, Mennonites. Stanneberg's turn of phrase also hinted at the conceptual underpinnings of that term, heretic, a civil and legal understanding of the line separating heretics from proper Christians. 
the commissioners had stumbled into a system for dealing with the effects of religious plurality that was predicated on assumptions inconsistent with their own. Above all, the arrangement they found violated their expectation that social and political cohesion were fundamentally incompatible with confessional plurality. The principal features of this regime, if I may call it that, were these. First, that there were two lawful forms of Christianity, the Roman Catholic and the Creed of Augsburg. Second, that while the only public form of religious observance was Roman Catholic, adherents of the Augsburg Confession were free to exercise their religion privately. Third, that the rites of passage, baptism, marriage, and burial, were available to any citizen of good standing. And fourth, that the eligible adherents of any lawful religion could hold civic office. In one form or another, this regime had been around since the 1530s after the purge of Melchiorite Anabaptists from the bishopric and the resettlement of Catholic and Lutheran refugees who had fled the apocalyptic kingdom of Jan Matis and Jan van Leiden in the capital city. One of its earliest evidences comes uh, from uh, an inscription on the south portal uh, of the Collegiate Church of St. Ludgeri in uh, Münster, in the capital city. You can see it here, V-D-M-I-E, Anno Domini 1537. Uh, Actually, they wrote Anno Domino and then wrote chiseled I through it because they like, made a mistake. <laughs> and then 1537. Uh, that, of course, is a reference to verbum Dei manet in eternum, the earliest modern motto of Protestantism. And it attests to uh, the presence of an evangelical faction, if you like, within the congregation. These ground rules, moreover, corresponded to a specific construction of sacred space. While the rite was discernibly Catholic, sacred interiors of parish churches remained available to parishioners of all lawful inclinations, that's neigugen, that's a word that they used, uh, though with no obligation to participate in the Eucharistic rite, even at Easter. It also made the hallowed turf of parish churchyards available to all lawful Christians in good standing. It was shaped by homegrown concepts of sacramentality and sacrality that interpolated civic needs with ecclesiastical functions in sacred space. Its durability depended on what Wilhelm Freyhoff has called the ecumenicity of everyday life, the informal indulgence that neighbors showed one another, both in public and private, in the face of disagreements over religion and the objections of purists. To make sense of these uh, attitudes and behaviors, I decided early on to take regimes of coexistence as my object to, to uh, approach them ethnographically uh, as far as possible. Uh, and in the first section of my talk, what I'd like to do is make four observations about uh, the regime of cohabitation that took place or took shape in uh, Westphalia and link each of them to a broader suggestion about how we might approach coexistence as the historiography advances. The first uh, is this. Contrary to the commissioner's operating assumptions, confessional plurality was not incompatible with the ideal of the Corpus Christianum. On the contrary, Westphalia's regime represented an attempt to preserve the body social by means of a liturgical accommodation against the tides, uh, against the tidal forces of religious pluralization. 
as their experiment showed, there were many ways to arrange sacred spaces in order to preserve the ritual unity that the Corpus Christianum required. The most vivid illustration of this comes from an earlier encounter experienced by the members of a diocesan visitation that crisscrossed the territory between 1571 and 1573. The protocols of their investigation revealed a sprawling uh, variety of liturgically hybrid adaptations to religious uh, pluralization. The visitors showed, for example, that since the late 1530s or the early 1540s, a significant number of duly ordained parish clergy had allowed the distribution of the Eucharistic coast in one or both kinds, however the parishioner wished to receive it. Exactly how this was achieved liturgically is not always clear, but their aim does seem clear to keep the members of the parish, of the parish together in a single rite if possible, notwithstanding their divergent liturgical tastes. The larger point I'm making is simply that in an age of religious pluralization, there were many ways to preserve the Corpus Christianum. As Keith Luria argued with respect to confessional relations in 16th century Poitou, communities responded to pluralization in various ways. First, a community might decide to, and I quote, impose orthodox standards of belief and observance, an approach that allowed no accommodation of diversity in the construction of sacred spaces. Second, a community might decide to blur religious differences and place greater emphasis on alternate categories of social distinction, such as citizenship, or rank, or privilege, or occupation, with hybrid constructions of sacred space, the result. Or, third, it might introduce clear lines of demarcation within the community, but at the cost of confessionalizing sacred spaces, either by segregating them internally or by replacing traditional parishes with confessionally specific alternatives. So one community, a Catholic and a Lutheran parish, let's say. The first two of these possibilities preserved ritual unity and the Corpus Christianum along with it. Only the third, confessional segregation did not. In the aftermath of Westphalia's catastrophic experiment with the first option, the violent imposition of orthodox belief and, and observance, at least in the capital city in 1534 and 35, the Westphalian towns opted for the second path. And in this, they were not alone. In towns throughout the neighboring duchy of Jülich Kleve, for example, wrote the Osnabrück reformer Johannes Polius in 1562, and I quote, a mixed manner of divine services was practiced in which the entire Catholic mass is held in such a way that the evangelical word, servant of the word, delivers the purer teaching and administers the sacraments, but is constrained to do so in the middle of the mass. These are adaptations kept the elements of the mass together in a single continuous celebration, but without forcing any single parishioner to participate in the entire ritual from start to finish. After the offertory, Polius explained, uh, Catholics uh, could exit the church as the Protestants entered to hear the minister's sermon. His sermon concluded, the Catholics would withdraw and the Protestants departed at the elevation of the host in order to show that they did not want anything to do, and I'm quoting here again, anything to do with that Catholic rite. 
And this, by the way, is a map of that comes from the uh, the visitation of uh, 1571 to 73, showing the various kinds of of uh, communion practice, Eucharistic practice, whether uh, the uh, communion was offered uh, more or less according to the communicant's choice, whether it was offered uh, as a matter of choice but only to people of a certain status, um, whether it was uh, uh, distributed only in one kind, and most rarely where it was just distributed in both kinds with no alternative uh, for uh, uh, Catholics. The second point I want to make is that no matter how transgressive its liturgic hybrid, liturgical hybridity seemed to outsiders, Westphalia's system of shared spaces was rule-bound. I've suggested some of the ways uh, that the common assumptions governing the share, sharing of sacred spaces, some of the ways that common assumptions govern the sharing of shared spaces, but they were also shaped by imperial law. Uh, from 1555 on, the construction of sacred space manifested a certain reading of the Peace of Augsburg, after all, and its codicil, the Declaratio Ferdinandea, with its provisions for the Protestant subjects of ecclesiastical princes. If the peace itself mandated official Catholicism in these territories, the Declaratio extended religious toleration to, quote, nobilities, towns, and communities that had adhered to the Augsburg Confession for many a year, lange Zeit und Jahr. Westphalians had interpreted the peace to confer upon themselves freedom of conscience and the right to exercise a lawful religion without molestation by Episcopal uh, authorities. Exactly what this meant in practice varied a great deal from one place to the next, but for the most part, confessionally plural parishes drew the spatial limit of free conscience at the boundary between public and private, a variation on the theme that uh, uh, Ben Kaplan developed so beautifully with respect to the house chapels of, uh, of Amsterdam. This application of the religious peace ensconced Catholicism as the sole public observance while accommodating evangelical parishioners in common worship as far as possible, and by allowing adherents of the Augsburg Confession to worship in private as they wished. Thus the peace provided a framework within which Westphalian towns could remain in a state of obedience to diocesan authorities, preserve civic unity and the continuity of local self-government, and minimize conflict among their confessionally blended populations. This leads to my third point. The fact that religious regimes were governed by shared assumptions and rules does not mean that they were static. On the contrary, the terms and conditions of Westphalia's regime were subject to debate and contestation throughout the period of its existence. One of these debates concerned the status of, of reformed Protestants. Did they adhere to the Augsburg Confession or didn't they? Um, in Westphalia, the initial answer was no. Um, in its final resolution of 1562, the territorial estates condemned the, quote, grievous intruding sects of Zwinglian and Calvinist teaching and banished the circulation of books that advocated such sacramentarian theologies, clearly off, uh, giving a, a Lutheran or Catholic or both uh, position. A decade later, Westphalians were still debating the point. In 1575, for example, a Catholic priest in the town of 
Bocholt, about which more in a minute, uh, a man named Wilhelm Brüggemann, denounced a preacher in the village of Wert, uh, not far from uh, Bocholt. His name was Johannes Werdelmann. This is a, a, a sermon that he published, pointing out that the communion ritual he that in the communion ritual he used bread rather than azimum wafers, quote, as the Catholics and Lutherans do, a practice that was, quote, in no way consistent with the Augsburg Confession and the Catholic religion. In the long run, however, the, the reformed Protestant inhabitants of Westphalian towns appear to have won the argument, most likely because antagonism between Lutherans and Catholics, excuse me, Lutherans and Calvinists uh, was relatively uh, small. By the late 16th century, parishioners who ascribed to reformed Protestant beliefs could be found in towns throughout the Prince Bishopric, but unlike their Mennonite neighbors, none were molested for their beliefs. Lest anyone think that I'm propounding some nostalgic vision of happy convivencia, I want to emphasize that this regime was not immune to violence and disrupt disruption. Uh, in towns throughout the uh, diocese, uh, moreover, the decades of the 1590s and 1600s, that first decade of the 17th century, were peppered with controversies, uh, often quite heated, concerning the burial of, of Protestant parishioners, among other things. More on that, too, in a minute. The regimes of coexistence that had taken shape in Westphalia were not, in other words, all sweetness and light. The crucial questions, rather, are uh, when and why. Was violence simply the product of some primordial confessional antagonism? Did it therefore express the inherent instability of plural religious regimes? When we look for immediate causes, uh, it turns out that most uh, violence was highly symbolic and retaliated against some transgression against the rules, spoken and unspoken, that had governed pluriconfessional coexistence until that point. In Warendorf, for example, the arrival of a Tridentine priest, his name was Johannes Heuer, um, his, his Tridentine commitments did not prevent him from having a concubine and a slew of children, but um, at least theologically he was in the right boat. Um, uh, Johann, Johann Heuer uh, prompted a uh, decade of testy negotiation with the Protestant-dominated town council and guilds over the terms of confessional coexistence. A negotiation punctuated by symbolic violence, including several profanations of the high altar in the church uh, and the churchyard of uh, St. Lorenzius Parish in the center of Warendorf, culminating in September 1598, when someone in the church tower poured fluid on Hoyar. The sources don't say whether it was blood or urine or what, just fluid, but of some kind of color that it stained his garment. So I leave the rest to your imagination. The trouble had begun when Hoyer introduced a more emphatically Catholic tone to, his, uh, to the weekly observances in St. Lorenzius. And in response, the town council had hired a Protestant schoolmaster, knowing full well that his curriculum was incompatible with that of the cathedral school in Münster. Um, which all schoolmasters were obliged to follow. Well, push comes to shove, uh, and eventually the council finds itself compelled to drive out a schoolmaster of, of their own hiring. There's this uh, marvelous little set piece where uh, the, the Protestant councilmen uh, sort of present the schoolmaster with the alternatives of conforming with the Catholic curriculum or leaving, and he thinks about it for a couple of days, and he comes back and he says, I can't teach Kinesios 
you know, in effect, here I stand, you know, and he goes. They fire him, and he goes off and becomes a, a schoolmaster, and I think uh, in Essen, but I'm not sure about that. In any case, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like a little homegrown version of that great confrontation. Um, in other words, religious violence, and this is my fourth point, was not simply uh, the inevitable byproduct of uh, confessional antagonism. Um, in his painstaking study of community, uh, study communities of violence, David Nirenberg uh, argued that the famous convivencias of medieval Iberia could survive only uh, so long, only because the necessary peaceable, the necessarily peaceable coexistence of everyday life was occasionally punctured by outbreaks of violence that clarified the ground rules and reasserted the hierarchies on which all of them uh, were founded. A similar dynamic obtained in Westphalia, where religious violence represented a kind of law enforcement, you could say. As often as not, it was punished, it punished a violation of custom in a regime of plural religions and in the process reinstantiated the hierarchies that were the foundation of cohabitation in everyday life. Uh, nothing illustrates this more clearly than those controversies over burial, the burial of Protestant, uh, Protestants in consecrated churchyards. Over 40 of them spanning a period between 1571 and 1630. Almost all of these controversies flared the first time a priest refused to allow the burial of a Protestant parishioner, or more precisely, anyone who had refused deathbed confession and communion in the Catholic rite. In every instance that I've been able to find, survivors insisted on their, the right of their kin to a proper churchyard burial in the consecrated churchyard, Catholic churchyard. Uh, their reason takes us back to the beginning. Like baptism and marriage, Westphalians regarded burial not as a demonstration of faith, but as a civic rite of passage. Churchyards, moreover, were regarded as a superconfessional commons. Violence erupted when anyone tried to alter that status. Examined solely through the lens of Lutheran and Reformed understandings of spatial sacrality, these attitudes and behaviors made little sense. Within the framework of Westphalia's regime of cohabitation, however, their meaning is readily apparent. Well, okay, so much for the, uh, the four lessons. Let's have a look at uh, one particular place, the town of Bocholt, uh, which I'd like to examine from over a period between 1545 and 1623. Bocholt, here it is, beautiful little town, uh, was situated at the eastern limit of the Prince Bishopric, about four hours travel from Wesel, um, that haven for Protestant exiles that Jesse Sponholtz uh, has studied so beautifully. Uh, oops. Here we go, let's keep that one. According to the standard narrative of confessionalization, and believe it or not, Bocholt occupies a space in it, Bocholt was the first site of successful prostridentine pros reform in the sprawling diocese. Indeed, the very first step in a series of offensives that would eventually result in the re-Catholicization of the Prince Bishopric of Münster. Um, according to these accounts, Bocholt's uh, ecclesiastical overseer, uh, the Archdeacon Gottfried von Rasfeld, 
here he is, uh, launched a campaign to cleanse the district of Protestant observance and to return its inhabitants to the Catholic fold. At a synodal court in 1569, Rasfeld carried out an inspection of Bocholt's parish church, purged clergymen from the pastorate and the vicarages, sacked the parish ch uh, school teacher, ordered the town council to instruct the church wardens to equip all author, uh, altars with wine, sacramental wafers, candles, and other things necessary for their proper administration and so forth. You can imagine him sort of decreeing all these things. The town council responded with litigation, inevitably. Uh, but the eventual result of Rosfeld's campaign, reached shortly after his death in September 1587, was to reestablish Roman Catholicism as the sole religion in town. Yay. <laughs> Left out of this narrative, however, is any thought of, the religious of religious accommodation on its own terms. The spatial and temporal adaptations of sacred space that Bocholt uh, had crafted prior to uh, Rosfeld's intervention, their structure and their function. All this story can really say about religious observance in Bocholt is that it deviated from Rosfeld's expectations, which is kind of a foregone conclusion. Nor does the story describe uh, the course of events after Rosfeld died in 1586, prior to that uh, big arrangement. So what then was going on in Bocholt before Rosfeld's campaign to reform the town and how did his uh, victory affect things? For about 20 years, the town had arranged sacred spaces according to those ground rules that I en uh, enumerated at the outset. Official Catholicism, but without obligation to communicate in the ca uh, Catholic rite access to rites of passage as a privilege of citizenship, freedom of domestic worship, and so on. Since 1545, moreover, the town council had hired a succession of Protestant school teachers, uh, starting with an English emigrant, an exile named Andrew Sadler, who, uh, who emigrated with John Bale, uh, who found refuge in Basel. Um, if Sadler's hiring was pre prelude to Reformation, however, as the narrators of Catholic confessionalization assert, then the underlying scheme was one of extreme stealth and perseverance. For not until 16, 1565 did the town's Protestants attempt to alter the basic arrangement for the simple reason, it seems, that they had remained a minority until the 1550s and still constituted only about half of the town's population in the 1570s. A 20-year period, in other words, in which they more or less accepted you know, the circumstances. What Rosfeld uh, strove to reverse was not, in fact, a Protestant takeover of sacred spaces, but a space-sharing arrangement that had been introduced in 1565. In that year, the town council reached an agreement with the uh, priest of St. George's Parish, which is uh, this one here, uh, which had the effect of establishing a confessional division of sacred time and space. Under this new scheme, matins and vespers were reserved for the old parish priest, Johannes Tomvete, who by his account celebrated mass according to the, quote, true Catholic, uh, Christian Catholic and apostolic religion. He would not, however, hinder the citizens from receiving the sacraments, as is their custom in both kinds. Between sunrise and dusk, a vicar named Johannes Rolofink would celebrate the mass and administer the sacraments of the altar 
and baptism and officiate at burials. But he was obliged to allow evangelical preaching by the married ex-monk Hermann Herbers and uh, Johannes Omelingus, um, another preacher whom the council had hired in, in 1564 and paid out of incomes from one of St. George's many vacant parishes or vicarages. Um, Hermann Herbers, by the way, uh, went on to become the reformer of Gouda uh, a few years later. Evangelical preachers also distributed the sacraments in the nave in a manner contrary to order and custom, the order and custom of the church, while the Catholic rite was performed at the high, high altar in the choir. For the purposes of communion, in other words, the church was divided into Catholic and Protestant zones, although without disaggregating the rite entirely. It was a kind of simultaneum in other words. This was the state of affairs that Rosfeld aimed to reform. As the documents generated by his intervention also make clear, the town council's aim had not been to displace Catholicism in Bochot, but to establish some form of open Protestant observance on a more or less equal footing with the Roman Rite. A record of negotiations between Rosfeld and the council in 1569 reveals that the town had sought a solution like those found, quote, in the great southern cities of Germany, such as Augsburg, where the services of both religions are held, such, as the, such that the clergy still possess and peaceably conduct their church service with the Catholic mass and so forth, as in the past, and the citizens content themselves with their religion. The effect of Rosfeld's intervention, in other words, was to restore an earlier regime which drew the limit of religious toleration at the boundary between public and private. Official observance remained Catholic, even as the number of Catholic families dwindled to scarcely 10. That's an observation from 1607. Um, Rosfeld's reforms did, however, provoke one major regime change. Uh, beginning in the mid-1570s, Protestant Bocholters began trudging off on Sunday mornings to a chapel in Wert, that place I referred to earlier, a village nine kilometers to the east and the center of a noble estate owned by the Counts of Palant Kulemborg. Count Floris von, of Palant Kulemborg had converted in 1566 and installed a a Protestant minister there, a man named Johannes Tremonius. By 1575, uh, Tremonius had adopted a communion rite that was, quote, in no way consistent with the Augsburg Confession and the Catholic religion. That's the writing of Brueggemann again, whom I mentioned earlier, and so forth. In other words, deprived of spaces in which they could exercise their religion publicly, the Protestants of Bocholt had opted for the next best thing. But that meant giving up on liturgies of accommodation, too. Religious differences had finally ruptured the Corpus Christianum. It would be mistaken. Oh, here's the, uh, the, the location of Bocholt. You can see Bocholt in that kind of lump sort of sticking out and uh, surrounded on three sides by Dutch territory. And that, you can see, way up there uh, at the top. It's still inside the. Uh, the uh, Prince Bishopric, but subject to the authority of uh, the uh, Counts of Anhalt, uh, which gave them kind of a liminal status. It would be mistaken, I think, to view marching out simply as ritualized defiance. 
we don't know much uh, about what Bocholters thought about their Sunday excursions, but the few scraps of evidence that we do have suggest that they imagined marching out as a kind of ritual acquiescence, an acknowledgment of the monoconfessionally Catholic status of churches in their hometown. This emerges from a, an anonymous note stashed among the files concerning archidiaconal authority in the Prince Bishopric. In June 1598, representatives of the Protestants in Bochold apologized to their Catholic archdeacon for marching out to public heretical services in the village of Wert. So they proposed a solution. If the problem with Wert was that it lay beyond the territorial limit of the Prince, Bishop, Prince, Prince, ugh, the Prince Bishop's authority, uh, perhaps the archdeacon would allow them to march out to services held in Protestant villages that were situated well within uh, the Prince Bishopric's boundaries. Uh, Sunday excursions that did not violate a territorial boundary, they hoped, would satisfy everyone. Uh, the proposal went nowhere, but it makes no sense unless its authors assumed that marching out far from challenging the supremacy of Catholicism actually enacted it. Uh, this, by the way, is a map of um, uh, one of the, uh, showing one of the uh, Protestant cities, or Protestant towns, really. Uh, Borchum, you can see there uh, on the left. And over here is Gaiman, which is a little settlement that uh, took shape around uh, a castle, uh, the seat of the Grafschaft Gaiman. And uh, this was the, one, the destination for uh, the Protestants of Borken. And they took the Weg von Borken nach Gaiman. You can see it sort of written in there uh, on their Sunday excursions. Um, this is actually a map from the 18th century, but I just couldn't resist. A map that actually sort of describes the route. Yay. Um, bearing in mind the four points that I made earlier, I'd like to distinguish among several forms of uh, coexistence, or that coexistence could take, which varied by their degree of formal legalization, uh, legal formalization, I should say, by the nature and degree of confessional pressure that they brought to bear, that were brought to bear against them, by the attitudes of parishioners, curates, and local elites toward pluralization, and by the precision with which confessional boundaries were delineated. Uh, one of these we might call hybrid regimes of this sort were the earliest and arguably the most widespread and reflected the syncretistic efforts of priests to preserve the cohesion of their parishes in the face of rapidly pluralizing beliefs and liturgical demands. For this reason, they were also the most idiosyncratic uh, and for the most part short-lived, although under the right circumstances they could endure for generations on end, as they did in Westphalia, uh, four or five, depending on the, uh, on the place. They depended on the solicitude of parish priests. They entailed the blurring of distinctions between Protestant and Catholic. They placed communal unity ahead of uniformity in doctrine and practice. Um, I won't dwell long on this mode of coexistence because most of what I've described falls into that category, but I do want to propose that the adaptations I've found in Westphalia were not isolated. Um, earlier I mentioned the uh, accommodations crafted by parishes uh, in Jülich-Kleve-Berg, but they weren't the only ones 
1549, for example, a visitation in Lippe uh, revealed that most rural clergy professed a mixture of Lutheran and Catholic doctrines and distributed the sacrament in one or both kinds while preserving otherwise the trappings and ceremonies of the old faith. Recently, uh, Jesse Sponholtz described the hybrid rite crafted in Basel to keep local Lutherans, Catholics, and exiled, Calvin, exiled Calvinists together uh, in a single rite. All of these examples come from the northwest quadrant of the empire, but I suspect that more digging would reveal plenty parallels elsewhere. Another regime we might describe as subcutaneous a wonderfully uh, evocative descriptor that I borrow from the uh, Austrian historian Martin Scholz. It describes regimes of coexistence that took, place in took shape in response uh, to the repression of dissenters and the confessionalization of sacred spaces. To describe the hidden lives of dissenters as a form of religious coexistence may seem perverse, but the persistence of dissenting communities attests to forms of, accept of acceptance in everyday life. As Ben Kaplan and Wayne Tabrake have argued, dissenting communities needed secrecy, which they could hardly maintain without the complicity and or the indifference of neighbors and kin. Dissimulation was also essential. As James Melton has argued, uh, the survival of crypto-Protestants in the Austrian Alps depended vitally on their willingness to, quote, conform outwardly with Catholic beliefs and practices while preserving domestic evangelical observances. Crypto-Protestants rendered themselves liturgically indistinguishable from Catholics, or nearly so. They were married by Catholic priests, uh, uh, reserved family pews in, the, in parish churches, buried their dead in the parish churchyards, baptized their offspring in the Catholic rite, and attended processions, quote, out of love and neighborliness, not wanting to aggrieve anyone. Hidden Protestant communities could not have survived as long as they did uh, without the tacit acceptance of Catholic neighbors. Uh, the result was a kind of defensive condominium that held right through uh, the 17th century and endured long into the 18th. And of course, that's the reason why uh, the Protestants who were exiled from Salzburg constituted something like 20% of the rural population, even that late, that many centuries uh, later. And of course, they were by no means the only Protestants in those hills. Uh, Maria Theresia uh, embarked on similar uh, campaigns of, of exclusion in the 1740s. Um, at the pinnacle of, oops, at the pinnacle, what am I doing wrong here? Here we go. Of uh, formalized coexistence was the legal parity of two or more confessions within a single community or jurisdiction. The Peace of 1555 conferred legality, if not full parity, on the Augsburg Confession, thereby rendering the empire formally biconfessional. It also institutionalized biconfessional regimes in the imperial cities of Augsburg, Biberach, Ravensburg, and Dinkelsburg. We'll hear more about uh, Augsburg tomorrow. This, mo this mode of, uh, of coexistence usually operated by sequestration so that each parish within a community remained homogenous, um, a homogenous monoconfessionally element within a larger confessionally plural whole. 
often co-equality was tied to power-sharing arrangements. Some of them imposed, others arrived at by negotiation and treaty. By no means all co-equal regimes were predicated on parochial sequestration, however. In Augsburg, famously, Lutherans and Catholics in the parish of the Holy Cross uh, shared parochial resources, but worshiped in adjacent buildings, if I have that right, uh, apparently without serious incident until 1629, and Emily will correct me on that tomorrow, I'm sure. In the, Catholic, in the cathedrals of Wetzlar and Bautzen, uh, similarly, co-equality was handled by subdividing the church interior uh, to form a simultaneum, not unlike the short-lived experiment that I described earlier in Bocholt. For the past year or so, I've been working on a database of simultanea. I'm up to just about 700 of them at this point. Formal sharing arrangements between two or sometimes three confessions and their mutations over time. They reinforce a paradox noted recently by David Mays, namely that the Peace of Westphalia, by establishing formal tri-confessionality on the basis of mutual and exact reciprocity, injected a new intolerance into, negotiation, into the negotiation of religious difference, transforming co-equal regimes in the process. Many simultanea originated, like hybrid regimes, from efforts to conserve unity against the centrifugal forces of pluralization. Under the post-Westphalian order, however, co-equality more often gendered grist for the mill of confessional differentiation. Mays argues that by holding out the prom promise of uh, public worship, dissenters were increasingly unwilling to endure marching out, for example, and agitated for the co-equal sharing of sacred spaces, simultanea, in other words. A sympathetic priest might let them have it um, with communal strife, the usual result. Hence, another paradox of the post-Westphalian era, that the number of simultanea increased sharply as converted princes sought to carve out spaces of a shared space for their co-religionists. Uh, this is a very crude map of, uh, uh, of the database that uh, shows the distribution of these simultanea without distinction of their internal composition or their evolution over time. Um, as you can imagine, that that uh, concentration of them along the Rhine reflects, uh, on the one hand, the efforts of uh, Louis XIV to impose uh, biconfessional worship on otherwise Protestant parishes, and then somewhat later, uh, a similar ever effort in the Palatine, uh, in the Palatinate there, a little bit further north. That's the bulk of them. Uh, the earlier ones are more uh, tend to be more scattered up in the uh, in the north, and then of course there are the uh, commonly uh, administered lands uh, of, um, of Switzerland and then uh, Graubünden, which famously had an, a large number of them too. I'll mention one final form of coexistence. Um, let's call it co uh, concentric, which represented a capitulation to the inertia of belief. Anton Schindling observes that in any given region, the first campaign to achieve confessional homogeneity typically stood the best chance of success. Once in place, confessionalized identities pr proved difficult to budge. Concentric regimes, 
often formed when a, pre, when a prince attempted to convert an already confessionalized population. The electorate of Brandenburg is paradigmatic here, of course. In 1613, Elector John Sigismund publicly converted to Protestant or to Calvinism and attempted a second reformation, but met with such fierce opposition that the reformed faith remained largely confined to the capital city of Berlin and the university in Frankfurt an der Oder. These regimes, organized around proximity to the prince and the court, proliferated greatly after 1648. In 1786, Johann Stefan Pütter toted up 42 imperial princes who had converted to Catholicism since the Peace of Westphalia. In most cases, the converted prince made no serious attempt to impose the Roman faith. Some, such as Elector Friedrich August of Saxony and, the, and Duke Karl Alexander of Württemberg, guaranteed the continuation of Protestant state churches. The great exception to this pattern helps explain the proliferation of co-equal regimes after 1648. In 1685, the Palatine electorate fell to Johann Wilhelm von Pfalz-Neuburg, a Catholic, who in 1698 employed a clause in the Treaty of Reiswick, which ended the Nine Years' War, to impose simultaneum on 240 parishes in which Catholicism had been reintroduced during the period of French military occupation under, the Louis, under Louis XIV, a few years earlier. Under pressure from Protestant princes, the elector accepted a compromise that would undo some of the simultanea and distribu distribute churches between Reformed and Catholic faiths on a ratio of five to two. When the process of implementation was complete, 130 churches remained simultaneous. The effect of Johann Wilhelm's counter-reformation had been to institutionalize the co-equal sharing of sacred spaces at the expense of an existing confessional monopoly. Now, this hadn't been the elector's goal, obviously, but it augured the future of coexistence in the empire. In the 18th century, a growing number of German princes institutionalized plurality deliberately by granting religious minorities the right to worship in public. This was not because they endorsed freedom of conscience necessarily. As we all know, their motivations were more often than not economic in nature. But whatever the cause, grants of toleration accomplished the legal and administrative integration of dissenters within the larger communities they inhabited. These concessions also disrupted the old alliance between secular and religious authorities. Almost everywhere, security for dissenting minorities was realized over the objections, over objections from the guardians of orthodoxy, who stood most to lose from any further sharing. That's all I have for today. Thank you for your patience. I hope I haven't gone into it. Um, How bad was it? <laughs> I mean, I